You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hassan, welcome to the show, man. Glad to have you here. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to, to get this going. So I'm curious, did you move to LA because you wanted to be famous? <laughs> At one point in my youth, yeah, I really wanted to be an actor when I was 13. And I figured LA was the place to go for that. But that kind of shifted more to, to, to being a comedian. And that's still something I definitely want to do. I did do stand-up for a little bit, just open mic nights here and there. So, yeah, there was there was an element of, like, L.A. definitely seduced me as a kid. I was, I was definitely drawn to that, whatever that is that pulls people here. Tell me about the first time you ever did stand-up when you, when you got out on stage and you were about to open your mouth. Uh, it, was, it was interesting. It was – I was pretty – I was very, very nervous – very, very. It was like you get up there and it's just suddenly like everybody looks like everyone, everyone, it looked like everybody was glaring at me. Like they were mad at me for being up there. And, and there was a second where I was like, I don't remember any of my material. And I was like, I, I was so close to just bolting off the stage. I was like, this is just not going to happen. Um, but I kind of stumbled through it. And like for us, it was really weird for a second. I was like, I don't remember anything I wrote. And then I was, <laughs> and then I, I kind of just grabbed the mic and just started going and I, it was it was like almost like it was automatic where it's like once i just said well i have to do it now i started to remember what I, what i'd written down and started just running with it um it was it didn't go well it didn't i didn't like delivery was terrible it was, it was bad but it was it was a great experience overall and and it definitely it was a lot of fun do you think it was a net positive for your confidence or a net negative i th- i think it was a net po- it was a net positive um, I kind of like, I kind of recovered a little bit. It wasn't, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't like, all, like terrible through and through. I'm sure it was way worse for me in my head because I felt like I was going to die up there. But overall it was, it was okay. I think I'd made it so bad in my own mind beforehand. The one that actually got up there and it went decent. It felt okay. It felt, it felt okay. And so I think that kind of like helped me feel more positive and confident toward it because I was like, okay, well I did it and I survived. So it's not as nearly as terrifying as I thought it was going to be. I was playing at the University of Alabama and there was a ball hitting the gap and I was running for it and I could hear the crowd. It's like a roar that it sounds like a loud, maybe low pitched roar when a bunch of people are screaming or whatever. And when the reason they had so many people at this particular game, we weren't a big draw, but they had a basketball game that night. And so when their game was over, a whole bunch of people filed into the stadium. And as soon as they did, a ball was hitting the gap and I'm running for it. And I think they didn't expect me to get to the ball. So my speed surprised them. And then you could hear it get totally quiet. And it's the first time that I've ever been really aware of the crowd as I'm doing something active like that. So it was really weird. They got really quiet as I was about to catch it. And then I lost the ball and it like popped out of me, kind of rolled over on the ground. And then it was just like this big roar after the ball came out and it was just like, I can't believe I just experienced all that in slow motion. It was like a crowd totally changed 
my perception of the world and the game. It was so weird. Uh, so I'm sure that's something you get used to, you know, performing in front of a lot of people. It's a whole lot different, though, when you're speaking. So when you're speaking in, in front of a crowd and you, you try to say something funny, there's a gap between what you're saying and, and the time it takes for the sound to, to get to all the crowd. And if it's, a, if it's a joke that needs to be gotten, so you have to think about it for a half a second, then it, it, it takes a while for the laughter to come. And it's just so, if you've never experienced that before, which I hadn't, it's just like, wow, this is so unique in the world. It's such a yeah. unique experience, but it, it feels like, wow, I wish everybody could experience this because like you said, it is a net gain. Like you do gain confidence, even if you bomb with a joke in front of people. Because you realize that shit is hard and it's a little intimidating when you've got that many people. Yeah, it's it's very it's a very strange experience. It's one that's like most people don't. The vast majority of people don't know what that's like to be in front of a crowd doing anything at all. Like all, all eyes are on you. Um, so it's definitely a trip, and it's it's something that you the, the I think the fun, the best part about that is that this I think that I don't know how accurate this is, but I believe it that most people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of death. Apparently, that's that's a statistic that gets thrown around a lot. And I think if you go through it and you realize that you're like you go through it, and obviously you're not going to die, but once you actually go through it, you're like, oh, this isn't that bad. And then if you want to keep doing it, you keep doing it. But um, I think I also, I had, as far as like public public speaking experience, I was so, sh I, everybody thought it was just shyness. Everyone just thought I was shy, quiet kid. Parent, my parents didn't even realize it. Uh, I found out a couple of years back that I had severe social anxiety, like really, really bad social anxiety. And it bit like since I was a kid. So what everybody thought, so whatever when i was a kid and i was shy it was like well just stop being shy like go talk to people and i just physically couldn't there was times where i like i just would i couldn't it's like my body just would stop listening um and i couldn't move legitimately couldn't move so it didn't get addressed properly and then i remember in seventh grade we had a um i was in a leadership class and we all had to give like a one minute speech i think or two, yeah one minute speech and i was so terrified and when I had to give mine, I think I did it in 20 seconds. I just read right off the page, didn't look up at anybody, just like blew straight through it and, and just wouldn't hear the end of it for my friends. And then I had like a couple more experiences like that, just speech classes. I don't know why I kept taking them, but something kind of, um, I remember I almost like broke down, started like, I almost had a panic attack before that first speech. So that, I think that kind of helped, but yeah, it's, 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 it's very, it's really interesting when when like you take the environmental factors into play yeah we could be doing it right now right we have we're gonna have quite a few listeners but we're acting as though they're not listening <laughs> i've found that as soon as you think of yourself through the perspective of others eyes you begin to freeze up so when you're yeah. in the batter's box sometimes i found myself every once in a while when you lose focus it's usually thinking of the fans or how the fans are perceiving you. And then you yeah. start to, you have to bring your focus back to the pitcher, but that's just a flash of an instant. It's like, whoa, get your head out of the crowd. And then yeah. you're back to where you should be. As far as being a comedian, I have a theory that you don't even really need to be funny. It's better to be 
someone who has a presence on stage and can deliver well with timing, comedic timing, and read an audience and, and play off of them and stick to your material and be well-practiced. Because there are comedians like Joe Rogan, for example, you can listen to nine hours of him talking to his buddies on the podcast. He doesn't say one thing that's funny. Right. He's a hell of a performer and draws a big yeah. crowd. And some of that's to do with this podcast, I'm sure. But he's a professional comedian. So I just think it takes a lot of work. How, many, how much time did you put in rehearsing before you went up on stage? Uh, that first time or just in general? Let's say on average, each time you go up. <laughs> I probably run through my everything like a couple times, all the jokes. So maybe like an hour and a half or two of prep for like, you know, what would be like a five or 10 minute set. So that was, that's usually what I would do. Um, I started doing this thing, Seinfeld. I think it was Seinfeld who said it. Seinfeld said one of the best ways that he used to come up with jokes was he would, he would, he would write a joke and mark an X on the calendar. And the goal was to create a chain of X's and just not to like, how long can I keep the chain going? And I'm just not going to break it. doesn't matter. Like, and, and there was no judgment. There was no anything about the jokes. It was just, I have to just write a joke. It could be terrible. It could not make any sense, but I have to write a joke. Um, so I was kind of doing that on a regular basis. So maybe like, you know, 20, 30 minutes a day of that. Um, but yeah, I, I was, I was actually going to say what you point, picked up on as far as like being a, being a comedian, what I've realized I haven't done it in a long time, but it's been something that's been on my mind again lately. And it was always kind of in the back of my head. And the more I looked at what like big comedians do now and, and some of the big comedians from back in the day, I, 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 I realized that most of it, you know, most of like going up on, on, on open mic nights and, and just doing, doing small sets here and there. The vast majority of it is like the jokes are definitely important, but I think the biggest thing is you do it enough times that you're comfortable on stage because once you're comfortable on stage, you could just be yourself. Dave Chappelle is notorious for, I'm sure he, he does. He do, I know he does write, he does have stuff ready, but he'll just, he'll just go off the fly so many times and he'll still be funny. He'll still be hilarious. So that's obviously a skill set in terms of like what it takes to be funny, but he's just so comfortable and he's just hit himself up there. So I think that's, that's one of the biggest things as far as a comedian, being a comedian is concerned is definitely, I think anything in the public eye, um, it's more about becoming comfortable with thousands of eyes looking at you and you could still just do what you got to do. That's a great point. I saw Patrice O'Neill at the improv before he died and he was so good at improv and interacting with the audience. And you could tell he had, he had material prepared, but to fill in gaps, he might read something off the, the guy in the third row and, and play off of that. I mean, even Trump is a confident speaker. And when he goes off script, I guess this is more of a political thing, but he'll repeat basic phrases to buy himself some more time to, to think of something else or to get himself back to the teleprompter. So I'm always a student of speaking i'm a former salesperson so i used to give a lot of presentations and practice and and mm -hmm. even the podcast as you get more comfortable you can be more yourself like you said whereas my first one or two podcasts was it was more scripted i, I went more off of my bullet points whereas now you and i are just having a conversation now i have bullet points in case i get stuck <laughs> but for the most part it's free flow and conversation and i think the way the world is now less formal uh, and unscripted we would prefer people just have a dialogue and, and little did we know people enjoy 
listening to long form dialogues, right? I mean, Rogan just signed a hundred million dollar deal with Spotify. It's incredible. Yeah. That's what I've, I think, uh, like authenticity comes through. It's, it's way more authentic. Um, I love talk shows growing up, love talk, talk shows, but couple years ago i started to realize i'm like i don't think what they're doing is super scripted but it's like hey we have these questions we're gonna ask you we won't talk about this stuff and then some there's been a couple times where i saw them slip and the host said something before the guest said it like you could tell it's like they had already something they already had something lined up and it kind of ruined talk shows for me because i'm like i don't want i don't want that i want like that's why i love bill burr i don't know if you like bill burr if like watching his talk show interviews he just he, that's him that's him entirely like that's him being him so yeah it's way more it's way more authentic the more you do it there's definitely um there's definitely a flow to it uh so and it just yeah it, it just feels natural people want to people like that yeah bill burr is a great example because i think he improvises ad reads on his podcast they probably just give him a script and say make it your own so one of the things you run into as a podcaster is you get big leagued a little bit if you don't have a Joe Rogan sized audience. And so people with a hundred thousand Twitter follows will be condescending or imply that they want to be paid for their guest appearance or whatever it is. But I'm of the opinion that depending on of course what your time is worth. And if you're an entrepreneur and your time is worth $500 an hour, you, you probably shouldn't make time for a podcast with, less than let's say a quarter of what Joe Rogan has. Right. But I, I think if you're in the public eye or I think if you're in any form of sales or marketing or entrepreneurship, even you should get as much practice as you can. It's almost like I played baseball. You wanted to get as many at bats as possible because it helps with your swing, your mechanics, your delivery. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the, the, the simplicity of genius is reps um, as much as people think it's some crazy, uh, crazy spark or just something, just something intense or whatever it is kind of out of the ordinary. Genius is found in the mundane. It's found in the mundane, boring stuff that's just you have to do every single day. Uh, and the more you do it, the better you get at it. Have you read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? I have. Do you remember the story about the Beatles? Like the little background about the Beatles? And like, I've done a lot of stuff with music. I, I'm not as much on the, like the, the artistic side of it, more on the business side of it. But to play an eight hour set, like as a band is insane. The dexterity that you need, the stamina, all that kind of stuff. They did all of that before anyone knew, even knew who they were. So you got to imagine at one point, they're just sick of it. They're like, this is boring, this is whatever. But it made them phenomenal. I like probably the biggest band of all time. Yeah, Scott Adams talks about stacking talents. And so if you can have a talent in speaking and work on it and progress and add it to a <laughs> writing talent or a basic math or persuasion talent or sales, once you stack all of those up, I begin to think about Charlie Munger's Lollapalooza effect, which is just taking ordinary knowledge and becoming extraordinary. You're right. right. If you become the top 20% in five important basic categories, <laughs> that's going to put you in the top probably 10% of humans. Yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right. And a lot of these skills are transferable. So you're a young man, you're probably dating and sales skills. There are so many situations where you can transfer those skills into prospecting for a mate and interacting on dates. 
a lot of it is very similar. You, you brought up Seinfeld. If anybody's not seen comedians in cars, I wasn't a Seinfeld fan when the show was on in the 90s, but that show, Comedians in Cars, is excellent. And it's excellent for a lot of what we're talking about, which is just people being genuine and having genuine conversations as if right. the cameras aren't rolling. I absolutely love that show. And then Derek Sivers likes to say that if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. But when you're in your 20s and you're trying to build skill sets and stack them and combine them in different ways and you're trying to allow for exponential growth to take root so that you can get compounding benefits in all these different areas, you are not to abide by this Derek Sivers rule that is, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. You're not there yet. You probably in your 20s, early 20s especially, you need to say yes to more things so that you get the sort of practice that I'm talking about. If you're in your 20s and you're big leaguing somebody and not going on a podcast because they don't have a, a Joe Rogan following, you're probably doing yourself a disservice, especially if your, your time isn't all that valuable yet. You're going to be more valuable to the marketplace as you stack skill sets. So your rate will go from $20 an hour to $50 an hour to $100 an hour and beyond. But you got to put in the work first in order for compounding benefits to take root. Yeah, 100%. You can't really filter it, but there's, there's, some, there's some big people who say some stuff and it kind of gives people the wrong idea. It kind of freaks people out and it doesn't really end up helping because like on Twitter, there's, there's a lot of stuff in this little corner that I'm in. It's very easy to tell now who's at the beginning of their journey and who's like kind of progressed a little bit and who's seeing some success. But a big thing is uh, they're like people, people will say, it's like if you look around, your circle and you don't feel inspired and you're in a cage, like all these stupid platitudes. And so people, and I went and it's like, and people, so people are like, it's this whole idea of like, well, just ditch your friends and, and find new friends who are entrepreneurs. It's like you like, and if you actually do that, if you kind of just like, if you actually do that, then, then you're alienating people you could have grown up with or people that have been there for you. And you are also ignoring the fact that everybody doesn't have the same goals and dreams as you do. People make, their first couple thousand dollars online, they think they're they're big time, and it's like until you're doing until you're consistently doing this for a year profitably, you don't like you're no different than your friends right now. Your friends are probably smarter; they're probably still working at nine to five. I think people should be a little bit more careful about their advice um, because I definitely see people kind of mistaking it, people misunderstanding it, a lot of pressure being put on people. I've dealt with it myself. I I to this day I'm I was talking to a friend of mine recently, and I was like, man, I I I just I was like, I feel kind of defeated. I kind of felt like a failure because uh, like coronavirus hit and, and hurt my business quite a bit. And uh, my friend was just lot. He's like, you're 29, not 89. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? But there is this whole Absolutely. thing in social media culture and all this stuff that, that really kind of gets to you and gets to people. And, and, and that doesn't help anybody. I think it ends up hurting a lot of people. Yeah, it's so easy to compare ourselves to others now because we see everybody's highlights. <laughs> But I can tell you, I switched careers at age 27 entirely, switched careers. So the fact that you're 29, that you are so young, it's incredible. Gary V harps on this all the time, right? He's 40, he's older than me. And he's yeah. always talking about how young people are. But the folks who advertise on Twitter, how much money they're making online and stuff, that's wonderful. But I can tell you from my personal experience, there are guys who are killing it. I would, I would think most 
who have never been on Twitter and wouldn't have time for Twitter, guys who are making $50,000 a year now as 25, 26 year olds in sales will five, seven, nine years from now, if they stick to sales, will have salaries that are triple that much and then right. get commission on top of those salaries. So they'll be so valuable to the marketplace that software companies, for example, will throw them not only six-figure salaries, but equity on top of that. So they'll have an opportunity to make five and six multiples of the equity stake that they have. And then they'll have they'll be working from home. So if they wanted to pick up a side hustle, they could. They don't necessarily have all this freedom that maybe online workers have where they can be location independent, but they do have unlimited vacation they could take advantage of. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. I, I think that people need to be more patient. We live in an immediate gratification sort of world. And what I would be doing if I were younger is stacking skill sets, trying different things to figure out what it is that I want to do and allow compounding to take root because I've, I've seen where Charlie Munger says, do whatever you, you have to do to get your hands on $100,000 and you know use a flip phone or eat hamburger helper, whatever it is, because you have to allow compounding to take root. Money starts coming a lot easier once you have bigger numbers in the bank. Yeah. It's the, like the momentum effect is definitely important and people, so many people with money, people just don't get there. So many people are like, can't make that sacrifice. Everything compounds and so many people just don't give themselves the chance to hit a reasonable amount. You know, like people go 10 days of doing something. People like not even 10 days, they'll go like five, four days doing something and they're like, well, I'm not a millionaire yet or I'm not this or I'm not that. I haven't lost weight. Things take time. How, like when it comes to losing weight when it comes to building muscle it's like if you really work out hard for a year it might take a long time for your body to look any different but once you pass that year you're gonna hit a tipping point and it's like your body's gonna you're gonna move leaps and bounds same thing with money or any of that stuff but yeah people are very lost in in sacrificing a couple months or a year for anything and then and and it's sacrificing that for a better like a better life in the future and and so they end up kind of just living this like meh existence and hating it yeah i have a young client so i have a coaching business one of the young guys asked me recently how does he get around better people and i said well you have to build yourself up to attract better people the guys who are studying to be doctors and the guy who might be your attorney someday is in school right now yeah so it's going to be hard for you to meet your good cardiologist buddy or the attorney that's going to rep represent you when you're a multimillionaire in your 40s and somebody comes after you. That guy's, in, that guy's spending a lot of money on his education right now, and so he's completely focused on that. He's not out at the bars trying to make friends. He's not on Twitter trying to make buddies with you. So patience, patience. Something yeah. you said earlier that I thought was important is writing a joke a day. Are you familiar with James Altucher? So he's, he's made millions and gone broke and made millions again and gone broke. And he's sort of made a name for himself being what you referred to earlier as authentic and just sharing his story. He writes books about his experience. Well, he's a big proponent of writing 10 ideas down every day. And I love this idea. I've tried it. I wasn't disciplined enough to stick to it because I, I had trouble coming up with that many ideas. <laughs> but it's a great practice for creativity. And if you're an entrepreneur, it can give you all sorts of ideas. 
And I'm a big fan too of, of having an accountability partner, uh, somebody that can talk you off the ledge when you're in your 20s. I, I lost a, a buddy when I was 27, my buddy Spanky. He offed himself and, and I, I just can't believe that he did that at a time when most people don't have direction in their lives. I think people in their 20s more often than not don't have any idea of what they want to do. But what's awesome is that you have all this time on your side and people, as you're saying, just don't have the ability to delay. They want it now. And I'm afraid that the imagery that we're bombarded with every day online is making that worse. It's sad to see. Is it pretentious in LA where you feel like you need to be driving a nice car, being a young man and trying to date and all that? I, I haven't seen it as much on my, my side. I don't really hang with those types of people though. I think that's what it is. There's a lot of, so the influencers right now, these young kids that are big on social media, it's, it does feel like that with them. It feels kind of superficial on the surface. I met one friend through Twitter who, who is pretty big in, in that space. He's kind of an influencer and on YouTube. So, and I met one or one of his other friends. They're both great. They're both genuine, honest, hardworking people. And I get along with them. Great. We went out to eat at a restaurant and they brought a bunch of their other influencer friends and everybody for the most part was pretty cool. The girls weren't super interactive with me. In my own head, I started to feel some type of way about it. Like not just the girls, just in general, where I was like, as far as social media is concerned, I'm the lowest on the totem pole here. (laughs) And I was kind of getting a little insecure and self-conscious about it. I told my friend and he was just like, he's like, dude, you probably have, he's like, financially, you're better off than everybody at this table. Like that's all they have. All they have is social media. So don't trip about that. And the other thing he said too, was he was like, these relationships, a lot of them are very surface level. Not to say that those people are all very shallow. He's like, it's everyone does kind of have to have like put up this image. Um, So there is, there is definitely a crew of people or like a, group of people a group of young people in LA who, who behave that way and who might look at you sideways if you're getting out of a Corolla or a Camry instead of a Beamer or something like that but I I usually don't it, it might have bothered me a couple of years ago it doesn't bother it doesn't really phase me now it's I'm at a it's if you don't want to talk to me because I don't have whatever then cool and <laughs> I'm not gonna wait I'm not gonna waste my time trying to show off or whatever i've i've spent i've i've learned those fine and i think it's for me i've learned those financial lessons where i've been irresponsible and spent money unnecessarily and done stupid things and had to kind of rebuild i'm kind of in the middle of like rebuilding right now so i think i've learned that lesson pretty hard that it's like my my cash flow is very i watch it like a hawk man. so i don't think i'll find myself you know doing those things i'll get i definitely like cars i definitely want to have nice stuff but I don't even think it would be something I would post online. I don't want people around me because of what I have. And if I feel like that's why people are around me, it's going to be very easy for me to cut them out. I used to feel stupid picking up dates in a fancy car and wish that I had a lesser car. Really? Why was that? (laughs) I just felt like it was pretentious. And I don't, what you just said, don't want people to be attracted to a fancy car. I, I think you're going to attract a certain type of woman with, with a certain type of car, generally right. speaking. Of course, there are exceptions. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I wish that I was in a Corolla.
one of the things I really want to do, one, one of the things that I'm going to work toward this year is creating a YouTube channel, kind of similar to car- comedians and cars getting coffee, but kind of I like, I want to do my own thing with it, but I want to be around uh, like exotic cars. And, and that's because I personally love, like from the time I was six, I was, I've been obsessed. Like you learn what kind of people those cars attract, especially here. Um, so yeah, I get what you're saying. It's like, uh, but it's like outside of that, I would, I would like, I'd love to have, I want to start a car collection of exotics. Um, hopefully within the next couple of years, but I'm definitely going to have like a normal, like everyday car and drive most, like drive that around most of the time. You're not even going to know that I have um, any of the other cars that I have. I have a buddy who just bought a Ferrari about three weeks ago. He posted it on Facebook when he bought it. And like you said that he's always dreamed since he was six years old of having a Ferrari. And sure enough, three days ago, somebody hit him and totaled the car. He oh, was, man. Yeah, in the interim, between the time he wrecked it and the time he got news that it was totaled, he was rooting for it to be totaled. But it's so, his cars are such a delicate thing. I mean, you have to park five parking spots away from the last car at the grocery store because you don't want somebody to ding it. It just, yeah. it just loses value so fast. I, I wrote an article called Driving a Porsche in Your 30s that you may enjoy. So my goal was to get a Porsche when I got older. And when I turned, I was about 30 years old and I had $80,000 liquid cash sitting in my bank account. But I had also set up myself to be notified when a three bedroom, two bath house came on the market that matched my criteria. So Mm -hmm. I ended up buying the house with that cash, $80,000. And that house is now worth about 155 ish. And it has since added because of the equity plus the rent payments about a hundred and let's say $65,000 to my net worth, just that one house. And that Porsche is now worth about $9,000 if it was driven conservatively. So that's, you know, $160,000 difference on that one decision that I made. So be careful. Yeah. Try not to buy expensive cars because they really suck you dry. And that's, you know, your biggest wealth building tool is the the liquid cash that you have to invest in. What kind of things do you like to invest in? I'm getting back into trading right now. I used to swing trade quite a bit. So I'm getting back into that now. I, I go back and forth on crypto so much. Having having like a understanding of technical analysis helps, but the fact that they're not they're not backed by anything. They're just they're just like these free flowing numbers. That's that's what it seems like to me. So deeply tied to public opinion, it freaks me out. So I want to get I'm, I want to get started investing in more local businesses. I kind of took a step back earlier and realized that I need to first and foremost invest really really heavily into myself. Uh, I think that's going to be the highest you know payoff. But other than that, I it's it's basically going to be like me and my own businesses, and 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 I really want to get into real estate. Not exactly sure how or when, because California is great. I, I I'll have to go out of state, but um, that's probably what I want to get into next. Well, you have an open invite to my one-on-one coaching if you want. I help people buy houses in Houston in the areas oh, okay. where I actually own property. Yeah, it's quite affordable and the returns are solid. And the appreciation's been good. But, you know, the appreciation's been good pretty much everywhere in the last 10 years. Right. Depending on which time frame you pick. That's actually when I started with most of my investing was 08, 09. I worked two jobs and just invested all of my commissions. So that's how I was able to buy my financial freedom Assis Ansari, you a fan? Somebody you you admire? I 
I did growing up. There was a couple years where I wasn't really a fan, and then now he's he's. I I like him now. I don't. I wouldn't say I admire him or look up to him, but I like him. What do you think about him getting swept up in the Me Too movement? That did you read that story? I could not believe that story. That story was the that all that story was. What that story told me, Aziz doesn't know. Aziz doesn't know how to talk. Like Aziz has no game. He's awkward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was just, that's all it was. I was like, this girl just embarrassed him by just telling the world that he doesn't. And that girl just sounds like she was just, she was just whining and wanted to be part of this whole thing. Like that story was such bullshit. It was just, it was like you had a bad date and you couldn't have been an adult and just left. And now you're trying to make this whole, like this, like a whole thing. So I don't. The result of the coddling of the American mind and the worsening of intergender dynamics, no doubt. That could yeah. be the poster child for it. As I understand it, they went down on each other. She blew him twice. <laughs> and he got uh, more aggressive in wanting to have intercourse. And I don't know if they actually had sex or not, but you're right. She, she probably felt embarrassed that she had been with somebody who is awkward and doesn't have game, as you called it. Yeah, it makes me not want to be famous ever. It just goes to show you that a, a girl can, under a pseudonym, go to the Atlantic and a story can get published about every detail of your date. And yeah. so you being in LA, I would think that story resonates a little, it hits home, <laughs> so to speak, a little more than it would me, who I'm married and I don't date anymore. and. I just yeah. found it so interesting. Yeah, it's it's. I haven't had anything crazy happen, but I've had like a friend of mine was dating this girl who was he was introduced to her through a, like a mutual friend, and this girl she was nice, she was she was cool, and he's he he's a he's a producer. I don't know that he's trying to be famous as a producer, but and a DJ. But I think it was like four or five months in. And then things got a little weird. She was being kind of dodgy and whatever. And he was he was pretty upset about it. He didn't know what was going on. So we talked about it. We he, I, I was I was leaving for a business trip. And he's really bummed. He's like, she's not calling me back. I don't know what's going on. And then I was like, well, just you know, just hit her up one more time, whatever. I leave and I'm in North Carolina. And two, like the second night that I'm there, he calls me. And as soon as I pick up the phone, he is noticeably sure. Like I can I can hear it in his voice. He's freaking out. And so he tells me that they like talked and whatever else. And he like, I don't know what was going on. Just she was feeling this or that way. And they were going to like work on it. And then before she, she was like, yeah, I want to work on it. Just don't be rapey. Next time. <laughs> oh she said God. that. <laughs> and I was like, and, and like, and he, and I asked, I just first, I asked him, I was like, did you do anything like that? Did you, I was like, you got to be straight with me. Cause I'm not going to have, I can't have your back if you're doing stupid shit. And he was like, no, I swear to God. And it's, I would like, he's known him for six, seven years at this point. I know he wouldn't do that. And so it became like this whole thing, but I was like, she, I don't know if she understood how serious it is to throw that word around to a guy. And it's like, if he makes, becomes famous as a DJ and becomes a big time music producer and all this kind of stuff, it's like, what is going to happen like that? That could come back to bite him in the ass. Well, young people throw around terms like that very loosely nowadays racist yeah. sexist rapey sexual assault 
is conflated with anal rape. It's, it's terrible. It's terrible yeah. for society. If somebody slaps you on the behind and we're equating that with the to- sort of rape that I just described, that is not good. Yeah. And it's terrible. This is all terrible for intergender dynamics. And we've become the laughing stock of the world, not for the reasons that people think, but because we have this androgynous society that we're promoting where little girls are are lauded for displaying what are historically masculine characteristics and then young boys are encouraged to not be aggressive and keep to themselves and act like little girls. I was dating in my 30, mid 30s, girls who were 10, 12 years younger than me. And it was so different than anything I had experienced in my 20s dating. And I, I thought it was because texting changed everything. I mean, you can see pretty much your first conversation to your last. You have the history of your relationship in your text messages, which is incredible. But I think there's an extreme literalism now where there's no nuance in conversation, probably because of less face-to-face interaction. It's all through text messaging. And so it, it's just changing the game. And I, I sort of feel for you guys. I imagine all of your, or most of your dates start on apps. Asis Ansari articles I was reading, they were talking about affirmative consent, which is like getting a yes at every stage of the grabbing the hand to pulling yeah. her close, to kissing her, to second base. And you're supposed to get an affirmative consent. What do we think is going to happen to intergender relations, I mean, that it just re- erases all sexuality and sensuality and flirtatiousness. All of that shit is going away. Courtship is from a bygone era. It's just not good. So I, I advocate for getting us back to our roots of masculinity and femininity, and we start to speak in those terms because most of this quote-unquote progress is not making society any more happy or fulfilled. So I believe that the women who are most depressed in the world happen to be living in major cities and have high paying jobs. Major cities like Buenos Aires, London, LA. It's, it's, it's awful to witness as someone kind of being on the outside. Our, our photographer the other day, we had pictures taken on the beach. He told me that I was, I was making Chinese eyes that I needed to open my eyes more. And I looked at my wife and I'm like, if we were in America, that's like the most racist thing you could possibly say. Yeah. But I mean, I, I would like to think he was just putting out a descriptor that would make me understand what he's talking about. You're just you're just describing someone's physical features. It's not bad. So to conflate that with full on racism, it's not a good idea. We, we probably should be training people to be more mentally tough and have stronger coping skills to deal with somebody who might make a comment that isn't intended to hurt anyone's feelings. Yeah. Yeah, it's, people are very soft nowadays. Um, I think I had a tweet the other day where I was, I just, I was really thinking about it and it clicked in my head. I was like, imagine, imagine, imagine calling someone a Nazi because they are a little bit to the right. Like someone's like, oh, I'm a little, and I, and I was thinking about it because I, there's there's people I know in my personal life who followed me on Twitter and and I was way I was really bad about it 
two years ago, like a year or two ago, I would kind of tweet. I would, I like to troll people, but I was saying some stuff that like, I, I definitely was just kind of saying stuff to get a reaction out of people. <laughs> and, and the people I know here are all very liberal and they got really, a lot of them got really upset. They kind of came at it. Some of my friends unfollowed me on Twitter. They were like, you know, it's just better if we don't follow you. And I, I had one of my, like one of my friends and there was this girl that I actually gone on a date with who just kind of became very like, she was cool when I saw her, if we like hung out, but she kind of always made jokes, like uh, jokes about me being a misogynist or something like that. And I was, and I, 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 I'm like, do you really think that honestly? Cause you keep saying it. And she's like, well, your tweets, blah, blah, blah. And this and that. Um, and she's like, you know, I think that because you, she's like, you're a Republican, right? I was like, no, I never said I was Republican. I said, I'm a little, I said, I, I said, if I had to choose, I'm leaning more to the right. That just means I'm more conservative in my beliefs. And in a lot of people's minds, when you say conservative, they immediately, it's like you just fall into this other filter of like, you know, Nazi, fascist, blah, 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 this and that, whatever. And it's like, you're comparing soldiers who would literally pull babies from their mothers, throw them in the air and shoot them to me because I want more financial autonomy. <laughs> Like, like the, it's so, it's insane how, but you know, but that, that is where, that is kind of where we're at. Joe Rogan said it, I think he hit it on the head. Um, he said the, the, the crazy feminist bullshit that's happening now, that's like, you know, trying to, trying to level the playing field across the board uh, and causing all these issues and dating and, and just gender dynamics and just destroying gender dynamics is, he said that exists because of a lack of masculinity. And I think that's 100% true. I think that early on feminism was definitely needed because that, they used to treat women like garbage. Like it was, it's like you would, it's, it, that's one thing that always cracks me up when people talk, talk shit about Muslim countries. They're like, women have no rights. I'm like, women barely had rights here a hundred years ago. Like, what are you talking about? Women have more in a proper Islamic society. Women have more rights than, than the U S has ever given them, but or that's a whole other thing. But back then it was like when it's like you it's like men were up here women were way down here and you were trying to like bring you know bring them up to where they uh to kind of level the playing field and now it's become this thing of like women overstepping men because men started to become weaker and weaker and weaker and uh and not kind of stand their ground and, and we just kind of moved to this really weird like weak masculine lack of masculinity reject feminism Fourth wave feminism, a lot of them reject it. They don't like it. They're not a fan of it. They're like, I'm not, they're just, they're, they, they steer clear of it entirely. And they're kind of more embracing femininity because they don't see it. And they don't see feminine, femininity as like anti-success, anti all this other bullshit. You know, they don't, they don't just say, well, this means I can't do this. They understand that there's a duality there. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't, I don't feel like where some people feel like some people have like a doomsday mentality. I don't, I don't see it headed that way i think things are actually pretty things still are really great in the last 30 years i think and and i think that's a major reason all this stuff is happening and it, i think the funny thing is though that like the pendulum always swings back and i don't know if you've seen it well in la especially i would imagine there's a lot of feminism and you made a great point people have gotten so used to special treatment that equal treatment looks like discrimination yeah there was a there was a tweet that went viral and i thought this was perfect this lady this lady tweeted she said i was 
she said, uh, oh, she said I was waiting in line for a bathroom. It was an all-gender bathroom. And she said there was two guys behind me. So she's like, when, when there was like, when the bathroom was open, she said, I went in and I was using the stall. And one of the men came in behind me and started using the urinal. And then she's like, I, she's like, I washed my hands and then I walked out. And once I left, the guy that was behind him went in and she's like, I don't know how I feel about this. She's like, why does this feel weird? And someone responded perfectly. He said, the first guy treated you like an equal. The second guy treated you like a lady. And I was like, that's, that, that's, that's the best way to put it. Um, because then you get an idea. It's like, well, what do you want? Do you want to be treated like, uh, like, do you want that? Do you feel like, you know, vast majority of people I think are good, but for, a, it's like, if you flip that situation and it was nighttime in a public place, would you feel safe knowing that you were in an all gender restroom and a man was in there? Not that, you know, men are like most guys, 100% would not, you would hope that they wouldn't do anything and all that. But it's like, there's just a difference there, you know? Um, and it's like, what do you want? Do you want to be treated like one of the guys? Do you want to be treated as an, like, as just another human being or do you want to be treated as a lady? Well, I see young girls talking like guys online all the time and it disgusts me, calling themselves assholes. It would be like if a man called himself a bitch. It's, yeah. it's so ridiculous. Women are, are trying to project what it is that they're attracted to and it's, you're going to butt heads when the masculine bumps up against the masculine. But they're right. trying to talk like guys because they think it's cool. It is not cool. We don't yeah. think it's cool. It's fine if you admire the way we speak, but don't adopt our language. Camille Paglia talks about this a lot, where women and men used to have their own hierarchies, and we didn't spend that much time together. Well, women used to mentor young girls and, and show them how to be a lady, whereas we have so much feminine discourse in America now where some women are disgruntled because they missed the husband and kids phase of life. And they went on to be a high powered attorney with a successful career. And they're the ones saying that you can have it all. Well, women have to make choices, unfortunately. And if, by the way, if you've got a beautiful woman who's calling you a misogynist, that could be a shit test because a woman is, is, more likely to leave you if you are too nice than if you are too mean. So that's, that's something right. to always remember. She, she may be shit testing and it may not be linear thinking where if he says this, then this, but it's just a feeling where if, if I call him a misogynist, if he can pass that shit test, then she's going to feel some type of way. So always got to be on the lookout for shit tests. I don't think a lot of these feminist women really believe or understand what they're talking about or the long-term consequences of what they're doing. But right. we are going to be repelled by women who talk like dudes. If you're on a date and a woman talks like, starts calling you dude or her friends dudes or, or saying shit like I posted up and it's like, get this, hey, I just want a sweet <laughs> feminine woman who's willing to be vulnerable. If we could just play the traditional man female role, I would really like that. Oh, well, let me, let me pay. Uh, let me pay half. No, put your fucking money away. She's going to be more attracted to the man who says, no, put your fucking money away. than she is who said, Oh yeah, I'm a strong feminist too. Why don't we split the check? 
Yeah. Out of here. Where were you when you heard Kobe died? Oh man. I was, I was at home. I was in my, I was in downtown, my apartment. I think I woke up around like nine 30 or 10 briefly. And I'm looking at my phone, just kind of like scrolling through Instagram. My friend had a picture of Kobe on his Instagram story. And he just put a heart emoji and a crying emoji on it. And then I was like, did something happen to Kobe? And then I, I, I looked around on, I mean, it was everywhere. As soon as I picked up my phone and went on anything, I, I realized I saw what happened. And that was probably one of the strangest days I've, I've, wit- I've experienced. By far the, the strangest in LA. But yeah, so I was, I was at home. I don't think I did anything that day. I think for people who are around our age, we don't realize the impact somebody has on us because we grow up with them as part of our lives. And we just never stop to reflect on the impact of witnessing greatness like that. Somebody who's so willing to put in the work and who just wakes up with domination on his mind every day and, and a, a will to win. And then something happens like that. And it, it causes pause for reflection. Like, Holy shit. I, I think people our age are going to see it as, as like, where were you when, when JFK died? I mean, it was that right. impactful and I can only imagine being in, in LA. It must've been overwhelming. It was, you could, you could feel it in the air. It was, it was, this is before anything went on lockdown. I remember walking out, this was on a sun. it was a Sunday. I remember walking out to my balcony when I found out. And as, it's like, as soon as I stepped out there, it was in the air. And I knew something like, I knew every, you could, you could just tell the city was feeling it. I walked out a couple of times and it just seemed like everything was quieter and everything was like moving a little bit slower and people just weren't really like, we're just kind of in a haze. I never had anything against Kobe, but people like the fan base kind of annoyed me. Kobe's fans were really annoying. Super, super annoying. Because I, I loved Michael Jordan growing up. But, and I, I thought Kobe was, I had this image in my head, which was more because of his fan base, but I was like, this guy's just cocky. And around the time, around the last couple of years of his career, I started looking more at Kobe and his mindset and learning so much about him. And I started to really love and appreciate everything he did and who he was. And so, and it, and it kind of made me regret not seeing that as a kid and watching him and, and being a fan. Um, and then, and so it was just like, it was very weird too. That was like a different perspective. I can only imagine people who grew up watching him, families who kind of like revolve around the Lakers and all of that. I can't even imagine how that felt, but yeah, it was, it was very, very, very weird. Very, very strange. I blocked a lot of people. Yeah, blocked a lot of people on Twitter that day. But. I'm with you on Jordan. I I was transfixed by watching Jordan on TV. I couldn't change the channel. I couldn't take my eyes off him if he was on the bench. I wanted yeah. to see how he interacted with his teammates. He had this aura of greatness, this charisma that I just thought was magnetic. And yeah. and you're right. Kobe came after him and tried to mimic everything that he did. So he couldn't be as great as Jordan. But I thought the last dance was incredible. I mean, it almost, it motivated me the same way that Kobe dying did. So the week after Kobe died, I worked harder than I've ever worked in my life. I I don't know how that happens, but I was inspired. And the last dance had a similar impact on me. 
yeah, I, I actually want to watch Last Dance again. I watched it a couple of weeks ago. I'm not a fan of watching every like watching something when everybody's hyping it up, but I I loved it when I watched it, and I wanted I'm gonna watch it again and take notes and probably like write article like make 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 a few posts based on that. Um, but yeah, it was so I don't know what it was. It just I didn't know Jordan on that like he was like that because from a fan perspective he seems like a really nice guy. And the crazy thing was that watching that made me like him even more the way he did everything, the way I think, and I think the craziest scene for me out of that whole thing is at the end of episode seven, where he, I don't know what they're talking about, but the last scene is when he gets, he gets kind of emotional and he was saying, he's like, I don't have to do this. I only do this because it's how I played the game. He's like, if you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. And it's so like, just, it's just so powerful. His, just the way, just everything that he did. Um, So yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely, I think Last Dance is going to become something I revisit from time to time to, to kind of use as like a shot of, of uh, inspiration. I agree with you 100%. And before you even said it, I was thinking about that part of the show and how he talks about the price of leadership. I think that is something we don't get enough of, is the understanding that leadership comes with the price of people not liking you a lot. You, you yeah. don't want them to like you. They need to respect you, which, which speaks to the masculine feminine that I was talking about earlier. You know, it's, it's historically, traditionally, a feminine characteristic wanting people to like you. Well, men care more about being respected. We don't care if you like us or our decisions. It's up to us. We're the macro thinkers. We have to have the long-term vision. And a lot of times we're going to make decisions that you don't like. And we'll learn from our mistakes and correct them and move forward. But I love that because that's exactly right. He saw potential in his teammates and expected the most out of them and demanded the best out of them. And they didn't like it at the time. But you know what? They came to appreciate it later. I came, I came to find that with coaches that I've had that, that I didn't like at the time. But you know what? They forced us to work hard. And I sure did appreciate that in my corporate career. Right. So I, I love everything you said. I happened When Kobe died, I happened to be sitting in this very seat, which is weird because we don't have a home. But... And the last time we stayed in this building, we didn't stay in this apartment, but we came back to this because it's on a lower floor and my wife is pregnant, but I was scrolling. So this will tie into a comment you made about music producers. Uh, when we were, we were in Bali the month before and I had a gym membership at a place called Titi Batu. And day one, I met a guy named Russell Simmons and he was there because 18 women accused him of sexual assault during the Me Too movement. And so we got to talking about Eckhart Tolle and the power of now and some of the books he was reading and the books he, the book he had written. And him just talking about, man, you wouldn't believe what I've been through. And so he's, he, I don't know if this is why he's doing all this extreme meditative work, but for somebody with hundreds of millions of dollars to be going about his day the same way that I was with the same I need to get control of my mind and focus on the now. It's just awesome to witness. I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but there was a new article that was out because Oprah wasn't going to back the documentary about these women because I think that she didn't believe some of them, but I could be wrong. But she has a friendship with, with Russell Simmons going back a long way. And so I was reading that article, and then I don't know that I've ever seen a pop-up on my computer before, but this popped up at the bottom of the screen, Kobe Bryant dies in a helicopter crash. 
And for me, it was like 9-11, like when I couldn't stop watching and reading things after it happened. I was just kind of glued to my phone and my computer reading everything I could. I wanted to find out how it happened. And I know that you were born in Pakistan and then moved to Toronto when you were six. Have you been back to Pakistan? Yeah, so we went back when um, we went to Toronto when I was six um, and then came to California when I was 10. And in 2000, so around 2009, when I was about 18, 19 years old, we went back to Pakistan, spent about two months there. So that was the first time going back since I'd been there. And I haven't been back since, unfortunately. I definitely do want to go back at some point. Um, it's just something that is a little bit more, it's a little tough. I mean, right now, nothing's happening, but it's, it's, it's kind of a lot to, to kind of coordinate and deal with because Pakistan's not, Pakistan's kind of gotten a little bit worse in the last 20 years. So it's tough going from being in the U.S. to going over there and, you know, dealing with the heat and, and the homelessness and all this other crazy stuff that's happening. But yeah, no, I definitely want to, hopefully get to go back soon. So by worse, you mean poverty, homelessness, that sort of thing? Yeah, that. And then I'd like lots of kind of tribal, tribal fighting and stuff like that. And, and just like political unrest and corruption has, has gone up and violence as well. That it, it's, it's strange that it's gotten worse than, I think it started to get worse in the mid nineties. And then it kind of got really, really bad around 2007, 2008. There was, there was a lot of bombings, a lot of shootings, a lot of like, a lot of like really, really bad stuff. I think in like 2008, right before we went, like uh, somebody bombed a children's hospital, which was really, really bad. But it looks like it's kind of starting to trend upward again. There's a new prime minister, um, former kick cricket player, professional cricket player named Ron Khan, who is now the prime minister, who's, who's kind of been putting in a lot of good work. So hopefully it gets better. Um, but yeah, overall, kind of, it became like really, really bad at one point. It was, it was, it was very very strange times over there for a bit. I must be saying Pakistan incorrectly, right? Because you say it the way that Barack Obama says it, which is probably correct. <laughs> Pakistan? Yeah. Pakistan, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, either way it works. I'm not, I'm not worried about it. In high school, I hung out with quite a few guys who were from India, and they okay. were always talking shit about Pakistanis. How do you feel about Indians? I don't have any issues with Indians. I think that I, growing up, I had a lot of Indian friends. It seems like we can get along anywhere in the world except for over there, uh, which is really weird. But I don't have any issue with them. Um, I don't like Indian people in general. Like cultures are very similar. Ethnic background is the same. So I don't personally have any issues uh, with any of the Indian people I've met and Indian people in general. As far as Indians, as far as India as a whole, I, I'm, not, I'm not the biggest fan. There's a lot of great things happening there, but there's also a lot of bad things happening there. And a lot of people kind of ignore the bad things. Uh, they kind of get overlooked because it's seen as this spiritual mecca, and it's really not. But yeah, overall, I mean, I don't have any, I don't hold, I don't harbor any ill will toward anyone that's that's Indian, or I don't let it cloud my judgment or kind of paint my my or like act as a filter of how I see them. I went to high school with a bunch of Asians, like the top let's say the top 10% of my graduating class was, they were Asian. <laughs> so I could never tell them apart in terms of whether they were Chinese or Korean, etc. But I've since traveled to most of those countries in that area. And I can distinguish them pretty easily now. Can you tell the difference when you see someone who's Pakistani or Indian? Yeah, I'm better at it now than I was when I was younger. 
so what's really interesting about that whole part of the world is there's so many there's so many provinces within Pakistan, India, Afghanistan, all those countries, and then within those provinces, I wouldn't say I wouldn't call them tribes necessarily, but just different 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 ethnic groups i guess there's so many languages over there which i didn't even know about until very recently there's some like there's more languages in probably one province than in all of north america but yeah you kind of learn to pick up a little bit like south south indians are uh south indians tend to be very very dark like you a lot of them you would think are black you can kind of tell by like skin color and facial features and bone structure and stuff like that so yeah i, I i'm a little better at it i'm not the i'm not the best but i i can I can kind of tell, I might not be able to tell where they're from, but I might be able to have an idea of like whether or not someone's Pakistani or Indian or what part of Pakistan or India or Kashmir or whatever. Growing up, did your family make you aware of the history concerning Indian Pakistan? And it's maybe it's partitioning following World War II. Are you, did they make you aware of all that? They did. Yeah. I, it's kind of been in my family's history too. So my, my 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 aunts and uncles on my dad's side most of them are actually older than pakistan most of them remember migrating to pakistan from india um my grandma same thing so beyond so beyond those stories and like learning the history and everything like that it was uh a lot of my family did migrate from over there so you know that was just some kind of something we always they always told us about and talked to us about the other thing was that my grandpa on my mom's side once he brought the family over um he he studied law for a bit and economics and then he went to work for the foreign department so he was a i'm not sure what his job title was but he worked in the pakistani government he worked in foreign relations for the pakistani government so he they traveled all over the world and it was uh it was a lot of diplomatics he was he was a diplomat basically so he did a lot of that stuff um so in that sense it was very very big and my grandpa on my dad's side didn't necessarily do as much in that sense, but he was, he was, he was an entrepreneur and he spent a lot of time kind of traveling Pakistan to find a, the best place to settle the family. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of the history has kind of been my family's history. Like it's even more so, you know what I mean? That they, that they, both my grandparent, both my grand, grandfathers took a very deep, very deep pride in Pakistan and advancing Pakistan and everything like that. So I did definitely learn a lot about it growing up. It's really fascinating for those interested. Indians were under British rule for years and years before World War II and were forced, India was forced really to participate in World War II. So they contributed something like 2 million soldiers to the Allied war effort to defeat Nazi Germany and Japan. And after the war, Britain, Britain was overextended and devastated economically. And so worked out a deal to partition India and Pakistan. And from what I understand, similar to what they did in Africa, so you mentioned how they speak a bunch of different languages. Well, in Africa, they speak something like 2,000 languages, yeah. which is astounding. But from what I understand, there was a British attorney that just started dividing things up in Pakistan and India, and he was using old maps and old census data. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the... The idea was to give Muslims a, a homeland similar to what Jews were given in Israel. Yeah, to an, to an extent. So India at the time, so British imperialism, I think, cause was at that point had been there for like, they'd been there for close to three, three, 400 years. Around the turn of the century with 
with all the tension over there, Muslims and Hindus were, there was a lot of infighting going on in India. They were killing each other and it was becoming really bad. And then they kind of drove the British out because they were, they were sick of them. And are your parents religious? Yeah, they're super religious. Uh, <laughs> a little too much. A separate country for the Muslims. Like, you, just like he, he said, he was like, there needs to be some partition because this is, you know, a lot of people were in favor of that. The problem was that the Muslim population was concentrated <clears throat> on opposite ends of the country. Around that time, yeah, they then like Pakistan formed on the west and then East Pakistan was on the right side and East Pakistan became uh, Bangladesh. Yeah, so then there was all these massive migrations on both sides, Hindus leaving Pakistan, coming to India and, and vice versa. And that was around the time that India got their independence and I don't think Pakistan was ever under British rule. Not, I, I shouldn't say that. They're just very, they're better. So when I was a kid, they weren't that religious. And then they became more religious. My dad became very religious when he got to Canada, a couple of years into Canada. And then he got really, really religious when we were in uh, the Bay Area in Fremont. And he's kind of, they've, they've kind of both calmed down a little bit, but they were very much, they were looking at Islam through a very filtered cultural lens. And it was actually like, it's a very like Indian filtered lens. They're a little bit better now, but basically what they, the way that they used to behave and the way that they used to, what they used to follow and think was true was mostly called, like it was, it was like watered down through culture. Um, and now they're at a point where they're actually studying Islam for what it is and seeing that a lot of the stuff they believe wasn't necessarily true. So they're pretty religious. They're a little bit better now, but yeah. So how were you able to avoid being susceptible to their religiosity i wasn't uh it was pretty tough growing up canada was fine canada was a lot of fun we had a lot of financial hardships at the time from a religious aspect we like can't like my childhood in canada felt pretty normal but my adolescence since we came to california from the time i was about 18 19 was very very sheltered and restricted and I didn't even realize how restricted until probably a couple of years ago. We barely spent any time outside. I think I used to hang out. I used to hang out with my friends from 1.30 to 6 on Saturdays. <laughs> as like, as a kid, like that's insane. That's so, yeah. and it was just, my, I couldn't go to sleepovers. Every time I, I couldn't go watch movies. I couldn't like, I, I kind of fought back a bit. And it's like, at one point it got exhausting, but it was also just really weird. But uh, yeah, I didn't really like, it was, it was really bad. It was really tough. It really, it was very upsetting. And so I, and I wasn't really a good student either, but my, I kind of saw that as my way out. So once I took a while to finish community college, but once I did, I made sure to transfer to a school that was very far away. So I ended up coming down to, com coming down to school near, near uh, LA like, I love my parents, but I was like, I need to get away for a while because if I don't, I'm going to lose my mind. I used to date a girl who, prior to me, had dated an Indian guy for like a decade. And she said when they would travel together, he was always called out of line at the airport because of how he looked. Oh, yeah. I'm curious if that happens to you because you look like you're from that part of the world, have a darker skin tone. I've gotten some random checks here and there. You know, just, hey, random security check, sir. There was a time where it happened. I wasn't saying anything. It was just, you know, they asked me to step aside and I did. And they were going through everything. And I was just quiet standing there. So I'd been through it once or twice. And I'm like, they're going to, you know, I'll be back in line soon. I started to take a little bit longer. And then they, I think I made a joke or something. And they looked at me really surprised. And I was like, what? And they're like, 
we they they just kind of like had a weird look on their face and they're like we didn't expect you to sound like that they're like where are you from i was like i'm from california and then they kind of like i think they felt kind of they felt a little shy kind of like dumb and they were like okay they're like you're you're good you know whatever and they and i jumped back in line so i kind of use that to my advantage now um, <laughs> you just start talking in line yeah i just start talking i just have like i i remember <clears throat> i don't know what it is it's just i remember when we were getting our like green card and citizenship stuff taken care of my mom loves bringing this up we were in line the whole family was in line we we're like we we're at this place in oakland government building and i had to, i used to have i had this big puffy jacket on had really long hair kind of tied up big black security guard behind the counter checking everybody in and just going through everybody just like handing them their stuff my dad goes my brother goes and then it's me and my mom's behind me he gets my stuff and he goes <laughs> and he's like all right bro you're good and then get, and then gives me a, and then fist bumps me and i was like cool and my mom just doesn't stop she's like you just something about you like i don't she's like i don't know what it is but something about you just just works i was like yeah i guess i could see it so I just, yeah you're very american <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think so i think it's also i kind of like I, I, I think it's in some ways it's an overcorrection because the way I look at it is my dad, I see my dad as somebody who came here and tried so hard to fight assimilation. It's like he tried to jump in a pool and stay dry. You know, it's like, that's the best analogy I can think of. So I think I learned to be very, I learned to adapt very well. And what I've noticed is that kind of fits in across the board. Um, I traveled to Europe a couple of years ago with a friend of mine and it just kind of, it just kind of works. I think that, I being respectful is definitely important, but that like, I guess you could call it like that American bravado and kind of confidence and everything that definitely translates over people, people responding to that. You've said that you're focusing on financial independence. What does financial independence mean to you? I think for right now it means to be completely, completely debt free. Um, financial independence, the way I'm looking at it right now is I want to be completely debt-free and be entirely in charge of my own income. So nobody else is writing my checks. I'm not working, you know, everything is entirely me. And I think independence would probably be hitting a lick, like hitting 500,000 liquid for myself. And, and that's just kind of, that's just benchmark that I'm using. Um, but overall, in terms of my life, financial independence is, is, you know, all of that except applied to my family as well. So making sure they're taken care of, they don't have any debt, like there's no financial strain at all. Um, that's what financial independence means to me. And then from there, it becomes a matter of spending my time doing the things that I want to do and, and kind of challenging myself and learning, learning new things. I want to be, if, I, I want to do the financial aspect of it comes in so that I could be a lifelong learner. I saw a tweet the other day that actually summed it up perfectly. Somebody said, as you get older, you lose a level of intelligence because you're so used to the same things and repeated patterns that you stop accepting anything new. And then you kind of just get stuck on loop. But yeah, anyway, that's, that's, that's where I'm at right now as far as financial independence is concerned. I think in my lifetime, I would definitely like to hit eight to nine figures. Um, in terms of my net worth. When you said lifelong learner, that resonates a lot with me because part of my taking a year off in April, 2015 was to learn as much as I could about the world by immersing myself in different cultures. And I actually like long plane rides so that I can read and write 
and think. And most people are not that way. But I've since turned it into full-time lifelong learning. And what's interesting is even preparing to, to have a discussion with you, I get to learn new things. So I know that you were on Zuby's podcast. Is it incredible what's happened with Zuby? Was he as popular then as he is now? When I was on his podcast? Yeah. No, so I was on his podcast, I think April of last year. So he that's when it was just starting to ramp up. February of last year, he did his deadlifting video. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that one. I have. Um, so he had his deadlifting video and that kind of like, that went super viral. And I think that resonated so well with a certain group of people. And that's that, that got him on the Joe, Joe Rogan's podcast. He did this US tour, but I hung out with him when he was here in LA. And, and when he was here, I mean, he had a series of just like Joe Rogan's podcast, Candace Owens, Ben Shapiro, all these like, and I think it just kind of skyrocketed his growth to, to made him super, super famous. Um, I think he'll probably be at half a million followers on Twitter by the end of the year. Do you think that translates into money? Yeah. I actually asked him about it. We had a call and asked if he saw that kind of spill over and everything else. And he said, it's, it's, you know, rising tide. He said it like music downloads, podcast downloads, speaking engagements, books, everything. I think that it's definitely uh, done really well for him money wise as well. Awesome. We asked him to be on the podcast, but he said he was focusing on paid projects, which is, pretty much fuck off. <laughs> so it's fine by me though. I, I totally understand. Hey, you want to do some fun questions? Sure. Where were you the first time you logged on to the internet and what did you do? I was probably six years old in Calgary. And I think I might've been looking up, probably looked up pictures of cars. <laughs> Very cool. I love Calgary, by the way. Do you go back there much? I haven't been since we left. I really want to go back. Uh, Calgary's, I, I love Calgary. My wife and I went there in September, I think it was the year before last, and went up through Banff and Jasper and all that. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Very underrated. I'm surprised more people don't talk about it. Although, I will say that I used to go back in like 2010, 2011, and there were probably 50 times as many people there now because of Instagram. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nuts. Yeah, Banff is uh, Banff's kind of not really a secret anymore. People want to go up there all the time. Um, but it's it's nice. What's nice about I remember being a kid living there. It's like if I go from LA to San Diego, if I LA to San Diego, I'm gonna pass like 30 cities, towns. You know what I mean? Like there's there's no long stretch of highway where it's like oh I'm if I, if anything happens I'd be worried. I remember being a kid and up there we went from Calgary to Edmonton. That was four hours and there was nothing in between. Like that's how underdeveloped there's just, there's, there's two cities, a bunch of villages and that's it in the whole province. So it's, yeah, it's definitely very, very beautiful. Hopefully people don't ruin it. If somebody gave you a hundred thousand dollars and you were forced to invest it in three companies, Apple, Amazon, and Tesla, how would you allocate the hundred thousand dollars? It has to be, it has to be those three. Apple, Amazon, and Tesla. I'd do a 40-40 split Tesla and Amazon and throw the rest into Apple. Let's say you were gifted free use of a private jet for two vacations and you could take these vacations anytime you wanted to take them. You can't leave them to your heirs. So you have to use them. 
but you yeah. can do it at any time, at any age. And you can take, let's say, three people with you. When would you take those vacations and where would you go? I'd probably use one to take my parents on a pilgrimage. I think that, yeah, I would do that. And then I would use the other one to go on a trip with some friends. Probably use it for Greece. And then just spend some time around that area. You'd take both trips in the next, say, six months if you could? I'd take my parents first within, like, the next year. And then the other one I'd probably take before, like, within, like, two years. Do you hope to marry someday? I think so. (laughs) (laughs) At what age do you think you'll be married if you had to throw a dart? Probably, I think 35 is good. Marriage is kind of a funny topic. My my parents, that's the part of the whole religious thing was from the time I was 13 or 14, my dad was like, you guys got to be married by the time you're 25. And growing up, I thought my dad's word was gospel. So I, there was a lot of pressure and it, it freaked me out. It prevented me from doing a lot of stuff. Um, and it would always kind of just be in the back of my head. So it's like recently I've told them they need to stop saying that shit. And I've kind of like, I've got kind of gotten it out of my head. I've never had a meaningful relationship because in my head I was like, well, but I want to marry this chick. And I, it's always been no. So it's like never, never had it deep into my relationship. So, but I would say probably 30, I think 35 is good. I think I used to think that like 40 was kind of like, once you hit 40, everything's downhill, but that's bullshit. When I was dating at, 33 34 35 i had decided especially at like 34 35 that i was going to marry and i believe there's an old jewish saying that says that you'll find your wife once you decide to marry so not before mm-hmm. but yeah i was just curious if you had to pick if you, if you could wave a magic wand and pick how many twitter twitter followers you would wake up with tomorrow how many would you choose and why probably like hundred thousand. I think that actually I'll say, I'll say like, a, I'll say a quarter million. Quarter million is a good, it's a good enough amount that I could leverage it and cap. I could capitalize on it pretty hard. And it would be, it there would still, it would still be, I would still have to figure out how to grow at that point. So there would still be that challenge and, and that kind of game to play. So much time do you think you spend on twitter oh way too much um <laughs> i i've been spending a lot of time on twitter i i mean i think my screen time on my phone for twitter might be like three to four hours a day so and i'm actively working on on reducing that i turned off all not- i actually just did this yesterday i turned off all notifications um for everything and i'm gonna i'm gonna start post if i post on twitter i'm gonna do it through a through a through a third party program because yeah, it's just, it's, you know, like you go and live your life and do challenging things and everything like that. And then you come back with stories. I'm at a point now where I'm just been, feel like I've told all my stories and talked about everything. And now I'm just trying to pull shit out of my ass <laughs> for the timeline. And it's like, I, and I'm like, why am I not growing? It's like, cause you don't have anything to say. You're like, I'm saying the same shit. So well, I think that's what a lot of people do to, to grow their Twitter following is just scroll through old tweets of other people and then just repurpose them, make, you know, turn them into their own words. Yeah. And I, I don't like, I think I really like Naval did Naval's like, you could tell this guy is like, you could tell he's, he's living because he comes back and drops something like he drops more insight in a tweet than I've 
seen it like you can get from an entire book. So I think the only way to get to that point, and it's and it's not the and that that's not the goal to be able to tweet dope plot like dope shit. Uh, the goal is to live a life that um, the goal is to live a very fulfilling life, and this is one of the side effects of it. So. Good answer. I've met some folks with huge Twitter followings, and they are the most awkward people that I've ever met. And I used to sell software to database administrators. So that it's saying a lot, not, not a lot. I mean, I've met some really cool dudes, but I've also met a few that have huge followings that are really, really awkward. And it just tells me, well, you probably spend a little too much time on your screen. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people, there's people that, I mean, on Instagram, Twitter's weird. Twitter's like Twitter has given too much attention to people who uh, it's given a lot of power to people who are very, very hurt. And they need to, they, they really need to heal. That's where all this bullshit, that's where like the fem, like at, like this crazy feminism gets pushed and Antifa and like calling everybody a Nazi because they don't agree with you and all this. Like, I think that I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not personally a fan of Trump, but I think everything he does gets amplified. So like it gets painted so much worse than what it is. And no, and everybody's so bought into it that people just don't like people just, you know, I think, I think the best, there's a there's a Twitter account called Has Jeff Bezos Ended World Hunger Yet? Have you seen that one? <laughs> no. So this, and I think this account's growing rapidly. So whoever this is, and it's somebody, this is the difference between somebody who, like, theoretical knowledge versus practical knowledge. Where the other thing with the internet is you can under, you can read and understand things in theory and say, well, why can't you do this? And it's like, well, it, it sounds good, right? It sounds like it should work it won't ever actually work in practicality. So this account is getting way bigger. I think it's at a hundred thousand followers and it's just nonstop content. Whoever made up, whoever, whoever runs this account has done extensive research and thinks that Bezos has the power to end world hunger because apparently $11 billion would end world hunger. And so the whole thing is constantly like, well, has he done like, it's, it's very detailed and people are, people believe it. People, so many people believe it and support it and think this is true and so much hate for Bezos. And, and it's like, if you make a logical argument against it, this person kind of comes back with some other, like they think it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense in, in practicality or in practice. So it's like, I can only imagine what that guy or girl is like in real life. I think that person is very, very mis, honestly might be a little autistic, but just like how much they just don't understand this is the funny. This is probably one of the funniest things I've ever read. They one of the tweets talks about how if you have an employee working for you and you pay them ten dollars an hour and they produce fifteen dollars an hour of value, you're robbing them. <laughs> the business owner is robbing the employee one hundred percent, and they make this whole thing about that. It's like, well, at the end of the week, you've technically worked like this many hours for free, so they're not doing you favors. Like, it's like, well, yeah, because if you if I pay you ten dollars an hour and you make and you produce ten dollars an hour of value. I'm not getting shit. The business is going to collapse. It's like, uh, it's just fine. Well, that's an obsession with equality and just not understanding. The Babylon Bee just put out a tweet. They had an article that they posted on Twitter that talked about the correlation between having read a history book and being in favor of communism. There are people also with regard to Trump that are just wholly incapable of being objective. And I think that's what Trump derangement syndrome is, 
is that the emotional reasoning is so overwhelming their intellect that they're incapable of objectivity. And the best example I can think of is Sam Harris, who is a neuroscientist. The guy's supposed to be super duper intelligent. But just yesterday, he talked about the lies of Trump and as if Obama never lied or as if Kamala Harris didn't lie at all in her speech the other day. You don't have to be an avid Trump supporter to see lies on both sides. It's like when you go to a football game and, and you, you have, you're sitting with your buddy who's an LSU fan, and then after the game, he's just completely incapable of seeing any flags that should have been called on LSU. Like, how can yeah. you be so one-sided and not objective? Well, it's because the emotions are so strong, they're so impassioned, that they're just incapable of reason. And of course, they don't see it themselves, right? That's how cognitive dissonance works. So, yeah, they, I mean, the war on poverty. I mean, that. how much money do we put toward that? People don't know that sort of thing. If they yeah. did, they wouldn't. It, it's the old adage, like, if you understood socialism, you wouldn't be in favor of it. If you knew how, the, how economics worked, you wouldn't be in favor of it. Joe Rogan is an admitted idiot economically, but it doesn't stop him from having strong opinions that are very intertwined with, with economic decisions. So yeah, it's scary. Yeah. We, we just, we don't have reason anymore. And I think it's because of, of, I think social media plays a large role and that's why people like Jonathan Haidt become so popular. That's why Zuby becomes so popular because in America, we're not used to seeing people like him, you know, just, being able to decipher between when somebody is totally full of shit and, and they're not. We have terrible bullshit detectors nowadays. I think it kind of goes back to authenticity and people just kind of believing. Uh, people don't really think for themselves. People kind of believe what, what, like the propaganda works. It works so well, they don't even realize it's working. Real life is still very different than social media. I, and I'm at a point now where the one thing that Trump, I appreciated about Trump was him calling out all this fake news. Like when Trump ran 2016, I hated him. I absolutely hated him, despised him. And he kept saying all this fake news stuff. I was like, you're just a piece of shit. And then I started looking around and I was like, there is a lot. And I started noticing the fake news. And I'm very glad I noticed that because I was like, wow, they do. And I really like, it's like that there, a lot of this shit is fake. I don't even know what's real anymore. News wise. I don't know what's real. And like, I, and so my thing is I look at like day to day behavior when I go out, to like people I interact with, people I see, whatever else. I've never once in my life seen a MAGA hat. And I spend a good amount of time in Orange County and I just don't see them. So I'm like, I wonder where all these protesters are and all these crazy people at the rallies and all this like whatever, right? And, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't see that. Um, I've also, I think so much of it is manufactured. I think so much of it is fake. All these like crazy videos where it's like this, well, this woman is, pointing a gun at this black lady. I just, I, I honest to God, I don't believe 99% of it. Um, I think it's used to just kind of keep people on their phones, keep people freaked out. The people I interact with on a regular basis, um, you know, life is, life is decent. Life is good. Just don't uh, yeah. talk about politics. It's very similar to witchcraft. Nobody could find witches. People were still being cross prosecuted. You could fly yeah. here. If a Martian landed in the deep South in America, he would need a few weeks before he found a racist. And I know yeah. that because I grew up in the deep South. I was, I was, yeah. I, I like when I worked in, I worked in mostly econ, but I was also part of 
sales. I had to fly around like Seattle, Dallas, Minnesota, whatever for sale. Like that's where all the headquarters are. These big companies, big retailers. This was 20, uh, 2018. I had to go to Arkansas at one point to meet with Walmart, Bentonville. I was legitimately worried about that. Legitimately worried about going to Arkansas because I was like, I Arkansas. It's like Texas is Texas. Minnesota's a bunch. Everyone's nice over there. And I've been all over the U.S., but it's like never spending time. I was legitimately worried for my like. I was a little concerned about Arkansas, and I tried to get out of it, but I couldn't. I was like, okay, well, I'm sure it'll be fine. And I go and first night, me and this like my CEO were at a hotel bar just hanging out, and everything's fine. My Uber driver from the airport was a Pakistani guy. Uh, so, but the whole trip there, I was there for like, I obviously it's not a good, like it's not, I didn't talk to everybody in Arkansas, but I spent about a week there and by far the kindest people I've ever met. Very kind, like no issues at all. I didn't have any issues. And I obviously don't, I don't live there, but my time spent, I, I mean, then I went to, I went to Georgia at one point, North Carolina. I have never dealt with explicit racism. Um, and, and I've talked to some of my friends who are like, who are black or, 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 or Middle Eastern who actually live there. And they're like, dude, if pe- they're like people, they're like, if anyone is racist, they're just going to avoid you. They don't, nobody gets in your, like racist don't, they're, they're not trying to fuck around and like, they don't want to do that. And if somebody's accident, I don't think that we should criticize people who are accidentally racist or ignorant. If somebody says something or thinks something and it's like, yo, that's bad. Be- it's like, okay, well, Tell them why it's not okay. Is it actually not okay? Or are you just being a sensitive little bitch? Um, you, <laughs> know? you can't say that anymore. We're, we're not doing corporate trainings for people who are being a sensitive bitch. And feelings run the show. I remember John Stewart going down to, I think it was South Carolina. And he talked about how nice people were. He said they were so nice. He thought they were being fake nice. And it's yeah. like, no, if you went to an LSU tailgate or you went to the University of Alabama or wherever as a let's call you a person of color just for purposes of this discussion, you would find that they're overwhelmingly just genuinely nice people. And, and the, what I find is that those who grew up in the least mixed areas. So like, for example, where I went to high school, it's probably 70%, maybe 60% white back then, 20% Hispanic, maybe 30% Hispanic and 20% black with a few Asians the top 10% of the class. Those people, I think it's easy to decipher BS as far as the racism goes. It's the people in places like Seattle and Portland, they're not in mixed race mixed race environments. And it's typically women and feminine men who are seeing racism everywhere. But if they visited these areas, which they're claiming are so racist, they would quickly see that people don't care about the color of your skin. Like, not at all. People are way more luxus than they are racist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, and like, this degradation of, I think one of the biggest things is taking faith out of society. And I understand that there was like, you know, like religion was very corrupted. But one thing that you see in the, like, Southern hospitality is you'd like there's a genuine connection and concern for your fellow human being um and i think part of it is due to christian like deep-rooted christian values uh and you don't have those in in far left states and you don't have those in far left cities and that's a big problem i think after high school one like the year after high school my friends came by to pick me up to watch the super bowl 
and they they came to they they showed up at the door and I was getting my stuff ready and my dad they're both white my dad was uh my dad was like what do you what, like just talking to me about what's going on I was like yeah I'm gonna go watch the game and uh, my dad was like tell your friends to come inside what is it what are you doing and they they come and I was like yo come inside and they were trying to leave they were like yo let's and I was like no no come inside real quick I gotta get ready they come and sit down. And I think I'm like take five or 10 minutes and I come out and my dad has like a full platter of food ready for that. Like, like, <laughs> like my dad made a bunch of food and snacks and everything. And he was like, you know, getting like talking and they, they, and they were so surprised and they said that that's never happened before. Um, and I think part of it is people kind of lose touch with serving their fellow human being and just, just that connection. And I honestly, the, the most, I think, I think by far the most like, uppity kind of snobby people you meet or not 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 snob. i'd say the most detached people are in lib not just the cities but liberal cities no doubt and what you said about church i think is an important point because the word fellowship and all of that entails all it encompasses is is so good for people and the church teaches you to be content with what you have and that Envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Well, in the church, they teach you that sort of thing. If you're not raised in the church or in a mosque, you don't learn things like don't covet thy na- whatever thy neighbor has. So you, right. you, you want what they have and you get jealous. And our politics constantly is, is telling us to be jealous of that person because they have more than me. And it's, it's ridiculous. Religion has been indispensable throughout every era in the history of the world, as most that we know of. So why has it been beneficial to people for so long? Well, it's the sort of stuff that we talk about. It's good for society on the whole. But people don't realize that. Secularized people don't realize that. And I think so people talk about how someday we're going to look back on this era and think that we're for example, eating meat, we're eating animals. And so that's going to be as awful as, say, racism was 100 years ago. I think what the crystal, what the, what we're going to see crystal clear 100 years from now is who the actual racists were. Because it's not the people that are being accused of racism right now. And I think that's just going to be so obvious 100 years from now, like, wow, why were people so stupid? It's obvious these people are the racists, not these people. It's obvious these people are intolerant, not these people. Yeah, I had a really funny experience where um, I was hanging out with two of my friends. One of them is a white guy, left liberal. Like he is the typical worst liberal. You would like, like, like he's like a poster child for liberalism. And then my other friend, who is her dad's black, her mom's Mexican, Hispanic. So we were, we were just kind of hanging out, talking about stuff. And it was so funny watching this happen in real time where he, my, my white friend started saying, he was like, he's like, he's like, yeah, I feel like liberals. He's like, I feel like white people and, and kind of like, and liberals kind of step in front of minorities and say like, yo, we're going to speak for like, I'm going to take care of this. So you don't have to. And he's like, we don't really let you talk. And we kind of blah, blah, blah. And he was like, how do you feel as a woman of color who's also like, you're black. It's not just, you know, 
how do you feel about that? And he asked her and then he wouldn't let her answer. And he kept going back to his whole thing. And it was so, I was just saying, I'm like, did you not see what you're doing? And he no just kept doing the same thing. Yeah. And eventually she, and she's like very soft spoken. And eventually she's like, you keep asking, but you don't let me answer. And he still didn't get it. Like he kind of got it. Then he started playing this bullshit, like self pity card, which is like, that's also a stupid liberal kind of like, victim. that's like a victimization. He victimized himself even though he was the one being oppressive in that moment. Um, so it was, it was just, yeah, you'll see who I think that I think the hardcore racist one, like not that there aren't racists on both sides, but I think that liberal racism is very real. They have the world convinced so many people running on autopilot and think liberals can't be racist. Cause it's like, well, they're so open-minded. They're not that open-minded. They're open-minded to their own ideas. And, and you just kind of think that they're, they're trying to help you because they say they'll help you. They don't actually do anything. But yeah, it's it, that's kind of the thing. My I, fun experiment is if you're in a room full of people that are very liberal, ask them, hey, do you think... I kind of want to do this with my friends, but I'm sure it'll end badly. Um, <laughs> but I want to I ask them, I'll say, hey, do you, do you think, do you personally feel that you're more open-minded than the average person? Individual, like, I want to ask, and if I'm 100%, they're all going to be like, yeah, of course, no, I'm very open-minded. And then I'm going to say, okay, well what do you think about me voting for Trump two times in a row? And they're going to all lose their shit. <laughs> and it's like, wait, 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 wait. I know they're all going to react very, but like, it's going to be a very visceral reaction. It's like, I thought you were open-minded. If you were, <laughs> you would want to have a conversation about this. You don't, you don't like knowing me, you know? And so, yeah, it's just kind of it's funny. Yeah. Saying that you're going to help people is enough for some people. And that's right. why some people think that they're virtuous for their opinions and it doesn't matter what it is that they do. I think the right. reason self-awareness is becoming in vogue and even the, the book Awareness by Anthony DeMello is becoming popular again is because we're seeing such a lack of self-awareness now, which is what the interaction you witnessed was. It's just a whole, it's, it's just lack of self-awareness. And it's that sort of thing ties into the extreme literalism and lack of eye contact that is prevalent nowadays because we just spend so much time in our screens. So we have to find ways to fight against it if we're going to thrive and not devolve into this society that admires politicians who speak a good game and make us feel good, like a Castro or a Hugo Chavez. In 2008, I had this super liberal boss who would, he loved Hugo Chavez. And I'm like, you know, 40% of Venezuelans don't have access to clean drinking water and he's worth about $2.6 billion. He's like, bullshit. I'm like, dude, that Venezuela is going to end in disaster. Oh, bullshit. Yeah. But he had a, a prestigious degree and I didn't. So he was way smarter than me. Also more compassionate than me. I mean, it just comes with the territory. So people think they're virtuous for what they say and what they believe. And it doesn't necessarily matter what they do. And it's a shame. What percentage chance do you think Donald Trump has of being reelected? I thought that it was a done deal when Biden got the, the Democratic ticket, but apparently I, I'm like I only know like I thought it was a done deal. Only, only reason I think it's not is because apparently I was watching I was watch I watched a little bit of Joe Rogan's podcast with Ben Shapiro recently, and Shapiro was saying that he said this time around that it doesn't look like. Uh, there's a bunch of other polls and a bunch of other whatever and, he's, and apparently it doesn't look good for Trump. So I don't know. I think at this point it's 50-50 picking Kamala Harris was uh, I, I just I, I mean, I think Trump's going to win again. 
if I'm being realistic. Um, I can't imagine a world where people would they let Biden into office and Kamala Harris. <laughs> because uh, of the cognitive decline? I think so. I think like I I think he like he's a Trojan horse to get the VP whoever his VP is. That's why he's there. Because they know that he's not gonna be able to handle it. Maybe like four or five elections at this point that I've been aware of. But I've never in my life I, I don't think there's been an election in the last thirty years where there wasn't a candidate on one side until like less than six months before, you know, like people were rallying behind Obama for like a year. Biden's been the guy for three months. Kamala Harris has been the VP lady for two weeks now or not even a week now. I I, like, it's so, it's so bizarre that they're kind of like waiting until the last minute. So I don't know. I think that's going to screw them over too. I don't really know. I don't know what the other states are like, but California is pretty much closed still. But I think that um, I think if Biden and Harris win, then everything's just going to open up. I think they're going to play some bullshit game like that, which is really, which is really shitty, and people aren't going to notice it. And it's like these are they they just like if people don't understand how full of shit politicians are at that point, then I think there's no hope for the masses. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like they kept you locked inside, and now it's like. Everyone's freaking out and so many people are like, yeah, we need to be locked up, blah, 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 whatever. And it's like, and then so-and-so wins and they're going to be like, oh, okay, well now we could just open up again because Biden's going to take care of it. It's like, you could have opened up before, didn't even matter. But Are you and your buddies talking about leaving California? Yeah, I'm leaving at the end of the month. Um, so I'm going to be going to Las Vegas, probably, probably Vegas or Phoenix. Um, a friend of mine's looking at properties out there so we just figured we'd go to either city and stay there for probably for the time being maybe until i mean we're gonna see it's it, uh, for the for the upcoming future we'll be out there and if things uh if things don't get better in california and, and or if i'm just enjoying it out there i'm gonna stay out there and is it because of politics or tax rates or all of the above i i it's it's mostly right now because of california's lockdown um it's not really fun being here paying this much money um and it's just kind of also like i mean the biggest thing for me is like it's it locked down and not having access to a full gym is kind of a pain and uh and i also just kind of want to go monk mode and just be away from everything for a while no distractions before we wrap up i like to do this segment we call overrated underrated so i'm going to give you a name you tell me if they're overrated or underrated mike cernovich Overrated. Dave Portnoy. Underrated. Gavin Newsom. Overrated. Jared Goff. I don't know who that is. Tim Ferriss. Uh, Underrated. Underrated. Ryan Holiday. Uh, Underrated. Dude, from what I knew about you, I expected this to be a great conversation, but exceeded any expectations i had my man i really appreciate you coming on oh man that uh, i'm glad i wasn't i'm glad uh i'm glad i didn't disappoint um (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i appreciate it how can people connect with you online i'm on twitter i'm mostly on twitter uh my handle is at uh a s a a a d u d e 
So it's like a saw dude. <laughs> okay. Um, Twitter is where I'm most active. So that's probably the best. Um, I have a newsletter on uh, dream stream. It's dream stream.substack.com. The link is on my Twitter. So that's the other place. Cool. Friends, at the close of every episode, I tell you how much I appreciate your listenership. I'm not going to stop doing that because I mean it. Because I'm truly humbled and grateful that you tune in. So thank you. If you wish to share this episode with a friend, please copy the link and text it over to them. And if you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. Thank you.